0: I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Y'all, I am so excited to chat with my talented guest today and to share with you the big things she's doing here in Chicago And we'll also get to hear her ancestral history and stories, which I know you'll all love. In fact, we've got some mysteries to solve, so we're asking for your help, listeners. Stay tuned for that. Okay, coming up on the 7th and 8th of November, 2023, perfectly fitting because that's during uh, Native American Heritage Month. I'll be narrating at a concert composed by none other than Chickasaw composer, violinist, and artistic director, Brandy Berry Benson. Brandy, welcome
1: to Native Chalk Talk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Or Yakoki, I should say. (laughs) Yakoki! Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Now, I thought there
0: were no Native Americans in Illinois, but lo and behold, there are actually two of us, right?
1: At least two of us, many more.
0: <laughs> but as some of you listeners know, I live in Oklahoma part of the year and here in Illinois most of the year. So we're coming to you today from Illinois together. And by the way, Brandy's from Texas. So all of y'all in Texas, hello to your yeah. your friend that you're loaning us up here.
1: <laughs> exactly. Howdy y'all.
0: <laughs> uh, howdy y'all. <laughs> yeah. We were just talking before we started about how much we miss Oklahoma and Texas right now. So totally. But, Now, Brandy, you corrected me when we were at Starbucks the other day that there are more American Indians here in Illinois. So I look forward to hopefully expanding my network. I guess there's some where you work,
1: right? Yes, actually, um, I'm on faculty at the School of Music at Northwestern University. And it turns out one of the, so where I coach the Baroque music ensemble there, I was my path to walk there from where I would usually park I would pass by the Center of Native American and Indigenous Research like oh. all the time. Of course, when I got uh, connected to, you know, the fine folks in that building and realized that I was literally walking by it all the time. Well, then, of course, I was like, well, this was meant to be so because they hold a number of events throughout the academic year at Northwestern University, including a powwow that usually happens in April, which is really Um, an extraordinary event that's put on by the students with their help. Um, And uh, it's, I'm actually in the process of becoming what they call an affiliate. Um, And so once that, yeah, once that becomes formalized, then they will have um, indigenous affiliates in all of the schools in Northwestern University. So being in School of Music was the last that they did not have yet. Um, so am
0: I invited to the powwow in April? Or... Of course. Okay, yeah, good. it's open to the public.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's open to the public. And um, yeah, it was. I went for the first time this past April and uh, was really just such a moving experience to see. Uh, And it's open to all tribes, you know, all, all tribes who are um, being represented at the university. So they do a grand entrance, which is really neat to see. Um, And then they have a number of activities that just take up kind of, it it seemed like a weekend long event, but.
0: That's fantastic. And so this was great information for me to know there's a powwow in April as well as anyone else. I know I have listeners from Illinois, so if we've got any Indigenous or non-Indigenous people that want to join, I'll see you in April. (laughs) We'd love to do that. So before we go any further, I just found out that you released an album in June. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, So this album was actually... um, I started composing it uh, during the pandemic so march 2020 happened as a performer of course i watched all of my performing work basically get cancelled well not basically oh, totally get right. cancelled <laughs> yeah. and, pro- and postponed and then cancelled again um i decided well i'll get i was always composing on and off and mm-hmm. so i thought i would um focus in on that a bit more and so um, I also was pregnant at the time too, with my little girl who is now a little over two years old. Aww. And so I was composing this music. I actually recorded the album in my second trimester. So there I was in the studio, you know, pretty oh, really? pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, which was really neat. Uh, it was really neat to that. Special. I feel like she was, yeah. Listening from inside. Right. right. Um, she was and, part of uh, it. Yeah, she was part of it. And I got almost all the edits done. And then, you know, um, and then she entered the world um, in September of 2021. And then, you know, after some time, I finished up those edits. And then I was finally able to release um, that album this past June. And it was it's actually my first album of all original work. I had released other albums with my ensemble that I direct, but I had never released an album of all music that I had composed. And part of that uh, was a track on there that I call Chickasaw Sweet. That was actually um, what started me in on this whole path of just um, getting back to my roots, as it were, and also just doing more research. And that's, kind of how I met uh Jared Tate. Uh so it turns oh, out yes. um so Jared is, you know, very well known Chicago composer, he's doing amazing things. Um but I just literally did a Google search for Chickasaw music. His name came right up and I read his bio and I saw that he had attended Northwestern University, which is where I currently teach. So I, you know, of course, was so excited. I kind of stalked him a little bit and wrote him and said, can we please jump on a Zoom call? I would love to meet you. And of course, he was, right? you know, willing. And we talked for, I don't know, it was a long time over Zoom. I um, bet, I bet. Cause yeah, he was so, yes. like He's so collaborative. He
0: wants to bring other composers together that are Native or just composers in general. I love that about him.
1: Yeah, me too. Exactly. And so we had a great conversation. Um, He was so extremely helpful. And then, um, yeah, uh, that kind of just started my journey on just wanting to find out more about Chickasaw music and specifically Chickasaw music, how it relates to my family ancestors and their stories. Mm -hmm. Um, so, because I, um, the reason why I started on this journey is because, um, I am a citizen of the Chickasaw nation. I have been ever since, you know, I can remember, I'm not even sure exactly when it was, I was pretty young, uh, when I got my citizenship. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, so my Chickasaw line goes through my mom's side and my, um, I had this portrait uh, growing up that I would look at um, in my parents' home in their living room that they had hung up of my uh, great 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 my fourth great grandmother um, and all they would say was her name was Pa Isha and so I would look at her portrait of course you could see just I mean she must be a very strong woman to have lived during those times right and yeah. so I just started digging in a little bit more about what time exactly was she living in because um, yeah, I had always heard that she walked what a lot of people call the Trail of Tears. The Trigasaw Tribes, actually, they call it the removal. She walked the removal. My, um, Her and her family, they're originally from northern Mississippi near Horn Lake. And okay. so, um, so, yeah, so they were on that uh, journey, that 800-mile journey. Um, it says that she was in Oklahoma Indian territory in 1838. Um, and, uh, or at least like that's, you know, when it's documented, but that was, that was when the Chickasaws walked the trail. Um, they were the last of the five civilist tribes to do that. Um, I had also heard the story of another one of my Chickasaw ancestors who actually was her daughter that married, um, they said an Englishman. I actually found out he was a civil war soldier. Um and found out through more research, a little love story there, while he was serving um, and fighting the Civil War, he met her and then he promised to come back and marry her, which he did. Um, and another thing I found out was that her father was Captain James Wolfe, who was one of the chiefs who signed the Treaty of Pontotoc Creek. And um, and so that's one of the mysteries that you alluded to is because we've been searching for him and I haven't been able to find a ton of information, except I was able to find his Indian name, which I cannot pronounce and would have to look at the spelling to spell it out to you. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, but at least I found that. But his um, his son, Jonas Wolf, was one of the governors of the Chickasaw Nation, so Paishaw's brother. And um, and so which I previously also didn't know. Um, But Hmm. so really cool to to find that out uh, upon further research. Um, And yeah, so there's there's a lot of stories in there. The stories that I'm focusing in on for the for this particular um, program called The Story of Paishaw are uh, Paishaw herself, how she uh, walked the trail the removal, um, and then lived in Indian territory. She, um, it's unclear whether she met her husband either on the trail or, or, you know, if she met him in Oklahoma, because they actually grew up pretty close to each other. So Mm -hmm. quite possibly, um, you know, he was a military leader and a very interesting man, as I've uh, been finding out about him too. Um, And it seems like you know, that possibility of them meeting along the way is, is, uh, is a pretty real possibility. Um, But so that's one of the stories that this uh, upcoming program focuses in on. The uh, second story is about my third great grandmother, her daughter, who married the Civil War soldier, and they had nine children and so because their relationship was a little taboo at the time interracial marriages it took him some time to prove himself to be accepted into the tribe Mm -hmm. but he but he was he actually there's a document that says that he was allowed to erect a gristmill and that the tribe gave him permission to do that and so I'm guessing that's a big deal if there's an article about it Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, but it's, it's really interesting because her children at the time, um, that Oklahoma was becoming a state, um, there was a story that was handed down in my family that, um, they actually, um, uh, let's just say lied about their degree of blood so that they wouldn't become wards of the state. And I actually found a videotape. My parents still have a VCR that works, which is unbelievable. But it's of my great grandfather, who's the last of my relatives on the Dawes rolls. And he's talking about how his mom said, he said, well, she's half, but officially she's an eighth because she didn't want to become a ward of the state. And so that's how they marked down their degree of blood. So if you right. go by what's not documented and just go by biology, you know, I should be a 32nd, but because their fractions were a little interesting back then, um, right. my, my fraction is, is less than that. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's very interesting. But the fact that not only did she claim less degree of blood, by the time she was in her 30s, she just dropped her Indian identity altogether. She claimed white on every census after that, and so did her children, even after they became heads of households. And I was, um, I wish I could ask my great grandfather today, like why that was, because he obviously was very interested in his Chickasaw heritage, because he was going around asking different people, there's handwritten letters, Um, from him in the council museum um, that also copies of it and the Haliso archives at the uh, Chickasaw cultural center. So, and he helped another lady confirm her Chickasaw uh, degree of blood for her two daughters. Um, So there's like a a memo and a letter um, back and forth about that. Um, So he was obviously very interested in it. So I, I always had this question about well, why would you be so interested in this if if you're claiming white and you wouldn't claim, you know, Chickasaw anymore? Um, But then when I watched that videotape and he explained in there, in the interview with um, whoever it was that was interviewing, it doesn't even say uh, who was interviewing him, but he mentions that about his mom, that that she claimed one-eighth. And what's even, uh, what's funny is, so my third great-grandmother is definitely full blood. But on another document, it says she's seven eighths. So I think that was also just kind of slipped in there. It's been a really interesting puzzle, um, just because a lot of Native American history, as I'm finding out, is filled in retroactively, um, because, you know, right, pre-contact with missionaries or what have you it's not like they were keeping records and writing things down and having diary entries or anything like that and of course you you know take into consideration the fact that the Chickasaw language is not even a written language it was just the sounds were literally matched with our alphabet so that there could be a bridge there and then here we have this you know dictionary and same with the Choctaws and you know It's so hard. I don't think anybody Mm
0: -hmm. until they start researching their Native American roots knows how damn hard this
1: is. So I I appreciate the work you've done. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And then not to mention, you know, your family members can have multiple spellings sometimes of their names. Spellings.
0: Oh, yeah. So hard. Um, What else would you like for us to know about your Chickasaw side of your family?
1: Oh um, well, gosh, I think. Um, oh, the last story. Okay, so the last story of um, this upcoming concert, the story of Paisha, which is kind of fun that it's the time of year as well, because um, so there's an Illinois connection in my um, family. So my my great grandfather, who I mentioned, as the last on the Dawes rolls. Um, this is also interesting too. So the Illinois connection. My my great grandfather actually married um, my so. He married my great grandmother, who's actually from Illinois. So she's from Montgomery County and this I still haven't been able to find out. um, But for whatever reason, they moved from Montgomery County, Illinois, to Texas to Hale, like basically like Hale County, Texas. Um, And um, yeah, and they had a six month old at the time, her younger brother. So I'm like, what would make you want to move with a young baby, like at that time frame. Right. right? So there had to have been something. Um, so that's another mystery that is yet to be um, solved. But when she moved to Texas, the Texas Panhandle, that's actually where um, my grandfather, my great grandfather, him and his family actually moved there, too, to that same area and you know were cotton farmers for a time before he became a postman. And his, so what was interesting is her family, they moved around Christmas time, and her parents um, had told them, you know, her and her siblings. um, So we'll still celebrate Christmas. We won't have any presents, but we'll still celebrate Christmas. So they got to the town, and the townspeople invited them into their homes and actually gave the children like corn husk dolls and little whittled animals
0: so lovely
1: yeah so it's a nice little christmas like kind of story to how she yeah like ended up in texas and then met my great-grandfather um so one of the things that's going to be featured is kind of a medley of choctaw hymns that are also christmas carols you know, to kind of uh, show that, um, to to help depict that part of the story. Um, But I always thought that was a really touching, a a really touching story that they, that's how, and that's how they met. I mean, they met, they didn't meet on the night that she was 12 years old, or, you know, at least it doesn't seem that way. But um, they did get married. I think she was 21 at the time, and he was 19
0: um,
1: some years later, so and, um, That's, and yeah. I love so that this was, story. This, this is so, story. you didn't tell yes. me this one. Yeah. This is a fun surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Oh so it's, so it's kind of funny that we're performing this in November and then it ends with kind of this, like, and now we're almost to Christmas time, you know, kind right? of right. It's a
0: good segue into Christmas. And yes. I'm currently learning those, um, Christmas songs in the Choctaw, right? Um, yes, totally. So, um, currently working on those right now. I can't wait to be part of that. I love no that story. And that's totally Texas hospitality right there. It nice is. People it is. Ever. Other than Oklahoma's, of course. Exactly. But. Yeah. <laughs> Southern hospitality.
1: We should say Southern. Yeah. There yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: But, you know, something I love about doing Native Chalk Talk is that I occasionally will have listeners who connect with my guests when they realize they have mutual ancestors. And so when you were talking about James Wolfe and um, his son, Governor Jonas Wolf. Those are maybe people that a listener out there may have some information for you or have some mutual ancestors. So listeners, please take note, write down those names. If there's anyone you know from your ancestral lines or a friend of a friend who does, please let us know. Um, There's also another mystery is the Hayapuk Tukulo clan. The wolves were from that clan, right?
1: Yeah, the Wolves are from that clan and it, it came out of an interview and I think it was President Lincoln remark because Jonas Wolf actually met President Lincoln a few times. Cool. I'm hoping that by finding more information on what that clan was, I could find more information about Polly Shaw. Her her um, I guess more her other name is Amelia Wolf. And mm. Wolf has been spelled just W O L F or W-O-L-F-E. Um, <laughs> I've seen that. Oh, yes. Yeah, so different different spellings there. But um, so, yeah, so hoping to find a little bit more Jonas yeah. Wolf or Captain James Wolf. Or if you happen to know, um, so her husband was Charlie Chico and okay. he married several people after her. And this is another um, mystery about Polly Shaw or Amelia Wolf is that her daughter she's documented to have one daughter but then on her gravestone there are three names uh erin julia and sally and then it just says sleep with mother and there's no birth or Aww. death dates and so it's there's a question of like who are these kids because right, for a long time our family this? thought she just had the one yeah so Aww. um so anyway that's a, that's another interesting mystery to solve there it's kinda I did read up on this custom that uh when someone passed in the tribe they tended to bury them near their home, you know, where they were living at the time. Not right. not the same practice of today, obviously with like funeral awake, you bury in you know, your relatives in a cemetery. Totally. So, yeah. Totally. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So interesting. And I'd like to thank a former guest, Solomon Tonica, for helping us with a potential translation for Pa Isha, which could mean lives here or close, and for Haya Pak which possibly translate to two twins or two sets of twins, Yakoki Solomon. And if any other translators would like to take a stab at that translation, reach out to me anytime on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page. You know, we talked earlier about uh, Jared Impachachaha Tate, and I do have to give a big shout out to Jared, not only because he's introduced me to a whole world of Native musicians, but also because of his upcoming composition, Shell Shaker, a Chickasaw opera premiering October 27th of 2024 in Oklahoma City. I love that you and Jared support each other as well as other Native composers and musicians. And as someone who used to sing opera, I'm on board that train of support as well. There's so much talent in our Native community. So let's talk a bit about your work. You said that you are faculty at Northwestern and DePaul Universities, and then you also work with some other areas, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I actually... And one of the, or I help coach the Baroque Music Ensemble at Northwestern, and I teach um, Baroque ornamentation and performance practice at DePaul University. And outside of that, I'm artistic director of the BBE or the Bach and Beethoven Experience, um, which is an ensemble that I have co-directed since 2015 and i also play with a bunch of different ensembles both in classical and also folk music you know in those two different worlds so so I you're just sitting busy. around eating
0: bonbons all day it sounds <laughs> yeah, like yeah right <laughs> yeah you know and to have a kid and a husband and i have so a kid yeah, and, a husband, yeah so. <laughs> and you're researching your ancestors which that you know that's the Definitely. thing you stay up till 4 a.m. to do sometimes. I oh, know.
1: so easily. Oh. And then it's like, okay, I've got to go to bed. It's, yeah, you know. I know,
0: right? It's like this yes. vortex. It sucks you in. The next thing you
1: know, it's been four hours. I know. Well, I guess it's better than just like, you know, getting lost in cat videos or something. Channels <laughs> are. <laughs> Although that's one too. For me, it's yeah, not videos. Totally. Yeah, definitely, definitely.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, you do so much. Um, The press really does sing your praises and not just here in Chicago. Time Out Chicago reported violinist and three arts awardee Brandy Barry Benson, whose four string acrobatics and indispensable skill have been praised as alert and outstanding as her riffs touted chicago classical review powered by a flashing blur of bow arm as they rolled out with irresistible glee as the washington post acknowledged so Lots of good stuff going on, and you're getting a lot of praise out there. As artistic director of the Bach and Beethoven Spirit experience, as Brandy just mentioned, Brandy has co-directed and co-produced such season highlights as the re premiere of Scotland's first opera, The Gentle Shepherd, an annual new music for period instruments project called Chicago Stories, a Baroque dance program and collaboration with world-renowned dancer Paige Whitney Baugus. Am I saying that correct?
1: Yes, I think so. Okay.
0: As well (laughs) as... Sorry, Paige. (laughs) She's worked with Paige. (laughs) As well as created three albums. She has appeared with numerous ensembles and orchestras, too many to mention here. And this November, Brandy, you will premiere a new work for period instruments called The Story of Pa Isha, based on the stories of your Chickasaw ancestors, which is so unique, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. Listeners, I'll be sure to share the links and info for Pa Isha on my Native Chalk Talk Facebook page And this, again, will be November 8th at 7 p.m. at the Epiphany Center for the Arts. Tickets are just $20, but Brandy is also presenting a complimentary concert at Upstairs Theater in Evanston Township High School on November 7th at 6.30 p.m. So come see Brandy's beautiful concert, and I'll be there narrating as well, maybe singing a couple of hymns. And you'll be using uh, period instruments, Brandy, right?
1: We will be using our flute player, she will, and my co-director, actually. Um, she will be performing back and forth between a Chickasaw flute and her Traverso, which is essentially like a, a Baroque flute of the time period. And mm-hmm. then I will also be joined, I will be performing on uh, period violin as well as um, I'll be joined with two colleagues that will be on period viola, period cello, Kioi Matsura on viola, and Erica Rubis on cello. And then I also will be in, uh, joined by Michaela Marchi, who is our Marquis, I should say, um, who has a number of different talents. She's actually a Sleta Pueblo. And oh. Uh, she'll be on various percussive instruments. Yeah, um, that is you know, very appropriate to the to Chickasaw music. And so, um, so, yeah, the period instruments, I mean, these would have been um, before uh, they were modernized you know, to today. So um, mm-hmm. essentially, the Traverso flute um, has less keys. It's not totally made of metal. It's actually made of wood. It has a sound a little bit closer to, you know, what a Native American flute uh, would have. Um, and as I was talking to um, Jack Pettigrew, actually, who, you know, is um, building the Chickasaw flute, he was telling me that it doesn't really play like, um, you know, in a key per se, right? And, and okay. the flute in Chickasaw music is, from what I gathered, tends to be like more you know, of self-expression, improvisatory, um, ah. things like this. And so there's going to be those moments um, where Leanne is having those kind of more guided, I, I call it guided improvisatory moments, because I've put some, um, you know, some notes and lines in there to kind of aim for. Um, right. But then, yeah, but then on the other stuff where she needs to have a little bit more like keys and everything to be able to play with the ensemble. Um, she'll be on her traverso flute, and then with the um, with the period instruments. So, you know, one of the struggles, I guess, too, of deciding to incorporate, you know, period instruments and having the native of American voice in that is that you know, um, of course, like pre-contact, you know, you really had. Um, a select few of instruments that were being used, you know, by the Chagasawists. And even, um, yeah, even into the 19th century before removal, and this is where I'm actually currently very deep into research about all of this, because Mm -hmm. I recently... Um, I'm a recipient of the Thomas Sajag Memorial Scholarship from Early Music America. and so that was my um, proposal and part of my proposal to research the intersection between um, specifically the Chickasaw and Choctaw tribes and the Europeans. And so um, so I'm deep in the weeds reads with that. Out of your weeds, however you no we say it. No pun intended. Um, yeah, no pun <laughs> intended. In but reeds. I'm like, yeah, deep in the reeds. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, into a that research. humor. Yes, exactly. Um, but what was so cool? So I actually uh, visited Oklahoma at the end of August, and I, of course, went to the uh, Chickasaw Cultural Center, to the Hollisso Center for um, Genealogy, and the, uh, you know to take a peek at all the archives that they had there. To find out right. more about my family. But then on that trip also I visited the Council Museum and um was able to find out a little bit more about the Bloomfield Academy, which was one of the Chickasaw boarding schools. It was okay. Chickasaw Run. And um it's was founded in eighteen fifty two and took a pause during the Civil War and then was reopened again as a co ed school in eighteen sixty seven. Um and then Uh, my history, or I'm a little fuzzy on memory of of exactly like how much co-ed or, yeah, but there's a a, uh, music class, a photo of a music class of all Chickasaw women, and they're holding, yeah, what was really exciting was to see that they were holding like violins, and mandolins, and guitars, and there's mention of piano, and that there was at one point an orchestra and a glee club or whatever, yeah, so like as and so the they call this the golden years, you know, between this 1867 time frame and when Oklahoma became a state because that particular school was one of the few chickasaw run schools and that was where you know it was considered very elite mm-hmm. to have your child go there um and they knew that it was a safe place right because you hear all those stories about the federally run ones where like you know basically children were separated from their families and it was you know to make them as white as possible and to get the Indian out of them you know Bloomfield Academy was really unique because it was run by the Chickasaws and they had the help of some of the you know um missionaries who you know served as superintendent and, and things like that and teachers and stuff but they had that music class and that That's made my amazing. heart so happy yeah to see that and that right. they were exploring and you know they were learning instrumental music in addition to vocal music and um, so I'm also deep in research to figure out like what exactly were they doing you know um, and yeah. what did all of that entail um, Because I think that is a really important part of Chickasaw music history, really. And to see if there was some kind of exchange where maybe they were even playing Chickasaw melodies, you know, I, all I know is that, um, I've seen some publications from people who are doing field research and missionaries and things like that, who, um, lived among the Chickasaws and Choctaws, and they jotted down those melodies in our Western music notation. And when I think about, yeah, and which is not so different than what was being done with our language, right? You know, with the Chickasaw sounds and Choctaw sounds being put, matched up with English alphabet, you know, Mm -hmm. letters Mm -hmm. and combinations, right? Um, And so I, so anyway, it's prompted further research into that. Um, But that's why I felt I actually had a long conversation with Jared about this, about just, you know, how do I make sure and honor this music? Because obviously I'm not, you know, going out there trying to replicate it like a living history person or even like the folks at the Chickasaw Cultural Center who do a phenomenal job of doing that already. You know so what right. is my role coming in and i kind of just feel like um because so much of chickasaw history is they wanted to learn the white ways because they felt like that put them on an equal playing field with their right. neighboring you know with their neighbors you know and exactly. i felt like they wanted to do that in all areas and um and just reading that they were memorizing compositions to perform at their convocations and things like that like i just i just can't help but, but think okay so um i feel oh more than okay to include strings um i didn't include guitar um and mandolin because i i just wanted to find out more about what they were doing with those instruments were they right. learning like were they strumming, were they doing, you know, so I didn't include that for this um, for this go around this iteration, I should say, of this project But I, you know, like I said, it's a it's an iteration, you know, it could evolve and change as as my research, you know, informs me and uh, (laughs) and um, causes me to want to do that. Um, So anyway, that that was kind of that was a discovery about the Bloomfield Academy that made me really excited. And then I also while I was researching my family, I uh, came across a document that said my third great grandmother, who married the Civil War soldier, that they yeah. married at Bloomfield Academy. So there's a family no tie there. Oh my yes, gosh. yeah, yeah. And so I feel like taking music
0: classes, right? Maybe,
1: maybe, yeah, or maybe her, maybe their children. So I'm trying to find them, in other words, and trying to find out more about what all this. um, Yeah, what all they were learning and, and uh, get some further insight there. But um, back to the period instrument thing. I mean, the modern instruments as we know it um, were, you know, um, that was more of a later 19th century into the 20th century, you know, how violins look today. Um, The chin rest wasn't, they say wasn't invented until you know, um that first half 1830s, I think, is, okay. is what I recall of like the earliest mention of that. Um I could be corrected out there by somebody. Um but <laughs> you know the but that's how that's how late we're talking uh, for the chin rest. Right. And then the bow as we know it um comes from that tort model, which is also, you know, a nineteenth century thing, which is, you know, um which at the time like this would have taken place with the with the golden years but there you also have to remember too that um since uh the us is a young country and what was actually available and things like that um Mm -hmm. that was why i chose to go more the period instrument route uh to be honest because um, although the Americans did adopt metal strings sooner than the European orchestras did, hmm. um, that was more of like the turn of the 20th century. So still, um, you know, appropriate to use a gut-strung, uh, period instrument, which, you know, uh, that, that's one of the major differences actually is, um, the fact that those that we play on gut strings. There are some other um, slight differences in the construction, or I shouldn't say slide, a maker would say major, but probably, but you know, there's differences in the, the differences in the, in the construction, even right. though they look very similar. And, uh, but the sound is way more mellow. It's a little more earthy. It's, okay. um, yeah, not quite as bright as you're going to get with like, say metal strings. And so and I thought that sound more than anything was more appropriate, you know, for the story of Pai Shaw. So
0: interesting. I love how you've taken the things that you've learned, which are two different things, being a musician and all that your years of stringed instruments and composing and all that. And you've incorporated that with what you've learned in your Research about your ancestors, and so to bring those two things together. I mean, surely this is like the coolest thing you've ever done, right?
1: And I know you've done a lot of cool things, but (laughs) yes, this is probably the outside of the Silver Linings album. This is definitely the most personal project I've ever done, Um, and and today probably the biggest and also most challenging in many ways, um, because again. I'm always running into this crossroads of just, Mm. how do I be true to what the scholarship and research is telling me? And then also how do I put on a good show that can make sense for people? um, And that is, you know, within my wheelhouse to be able to convey to others. So trying to make sure I'm true to all of those things is, is proving to be a challenge. And I've been kind of taking note and of different research and how it's been informing some of the artistic choices that I run up against um, interesting as I'm composing the piece yeah so uh, that first thing with instrumentation I wrestled with that a lot I still wrestle with it you know it still might change even after we perform it in subsequent times even after November so
0: first off Um, if anyone's going to judge your work in a negative way (laughs) I mean it's kind of like uh this composer is paving a new path and there's so much to learn you and Jared both are doing things that no one has ever done
1: before so I mean right I I, I
0: would think oh yeah totally that
1: That was actually part of his encouragement to me was just because I asked him this I said well uh, you know you as a composer like how do you reconcile the fact that a lot of our history did not use string instruments and here you are writing for an opera right. and like all these <laughs> things he's like brandy it's chickasaw no matter what i do <laughs> i think said something to man. the something to that effect i'm not quoting i'm not making a direct quote so i'm sorry jared if you're listening at some point to this episode. <laughs> sorry, <Jared>. but, um, <laughs> yeah hello um but yeah no i mean because he does some super phenomenal i mean First of all, it was really exciting when he agreed to share some of his solo violin works with me. So that's been really fun to um, learn and dive into those. Um, Oh, yeah. that has been really fun. Yeah. But also just, you know, to chat with him about that. And he just was very encouraging. And, you know, essentially what I got out of the conversation, which is what keeps coming back to me, is the fact that, you know, the Chickasaws and the Choctaws, we are people that adapt. And, you know, we were dealt a hand and, um, you know, embraced the like the changes that we needed to make in order to survive and thrive and still hung on to our heritage after that, even still. And maybe that looks different in different ways, you know, Um, that maybe it's not exactly you know, um, the stomp dances in fact that that are still being done as demonstrations. You know, those aren't being done exactly in the context probably that it was pre-con you know, pre-contact, but they're still being done. Um, the fact that um when Jared is writing uh I recently performed one of his pieces called Raccoon Talk that's based on one of those Um, like uh, based on one of the social dances um, melodies from one of the social dances and of course you know he uh, employs all sorts of compositional techniques and other things like surrounding that melody and um, but that melody is still in there even though it sounds like a very 20th century piece Um, and so I just think of that as like well you know he's still very much hanging on to the Chickasaw heritage and also incorporating what our people have always had to do which is incorporate the quote-unquote white ways into exactly you know our heritage well, so yeah
0: and I have to admit I know that your ancestors must be looking down on you so proud and just going so. <laughs> look what she's doing that's so cool yes. it's, it's such an honor it's honoring them and yeah, so this so. is more than just a concert It's so much more. Yeah, definitely. So just a couple more questions. I mentioned earlier that you've released um, three, but actually now four albums with your newest one that just came out. Tell us the names of those and where people can find them.
1: Sure. Um, So the most recent release is Silver Linings, and that can be found on any of the streaming platforms, Apple Music, iTunes, Pandora, you know, what have you. Um, you can also find it on my personal website, which is brandyberrybenson.com. And then uh, the three albums that I released with the Bach and Beethoven Experience, um, those are called A Gaelic Summer, An Appalachian Summer, and then Chicago Stories. And A Gaelic Summer, yeah, it's those are super fun programs. They were awesome to record. Um, A Gaelic Summer is basically fiddle tunes and drinking songs and just silly songs all from the 17th, 18th centuries, Ireland, England, Wales, Scotland. So lots to have fun with there, which incidentally a lot of our American fiddle music has roots in. Um, And Appalachian summer explores more of those roots and includes um, music from the Appalachian region and also a lot of ties um, to different fiddlers and folk communities um, outside of the Appalachian region as well. Um, And so an Appalachian summer is so has a very folky sound. Um, Chicago Stories is really unique because we um, collaborated with six different composers that are from Chicago, and they each chose a community to or an individual from a community to write about. So for example, one of them Interviewed two um, Assyrian refugees that fled Iraq and now have their home in like Rogers Park and Lincolnwood um, oh, wow. in Chicagoland. And then um, so he set their stories to music. Another one, um, Wrote about his grandfather traveling. He immigrated from Yotenburg, Sweden, uh, to basically like Andersonville, and there's that huge Swedish population there.
0: Okay, and was
1: he was actually a minister at one of the church, one of the very long time churches that's been there over a hundred years, um, oh. there. So he has he set his uh, grandfather's story, uh, to music, and then also, um, as another example, we had um. One of our one of our composers, she interviewed two minorities that were in executive positions. One was in the non private, you know, uh, two minority women, I should say, or women of color in the um, both in the um, nonprofit sector and the corporate world and wrote pieces like based on their experiences as well one of them imitates like a musical board meeting, which is kind of interesting oh, and fun neat. Uh, collection I love and you can that. hear all oh the gosh. different yeah all the different flavors if you will of chicago neighborhoods we're telling the stories that you're not going to hear as a tourist exactly Um, and so yeah so that's what that album is all about so i guess in a way we were due for more stories that are set to music and so right story of paisha then now taking it to my family so that music is all i should say um all available on the same streaming platforms that i mentioned for silver linings and um To download the album directly from our site or to purchase an actual CD, you can go to bbexperience.org if any of those albums sound um, intriguing to you. But if you also Uh like holiday music that is not like the typical holiday music, we are actually releasing our Carol's album this December, so very busy fall for, for us. Um, but we are really, yeah, yes, definitely. We don't usually have these many things going back to back. but, um, the Carol's release, yeah, Carol's release is happening December 15th and 16th. And that's featuring, um, we've done it kind of Advent style, but not sticking to Advent. So there's other holidays in there that aren't part of the Advent, Advent season that we're kind of paying, you know, um, like kind of like a musical tribute to, in a way. Um, So there's holidays, like, of course, we've got um, Hanukkah, and we've also got National Violin Day falls in December. So there's a really cool medley for that. Um, We've also got um, uh, Krampusnacht, which not many people know that. If you're European, you know this more, but they he's kind of like the anti Santa Claus. <laughs> and um, they're like a scary movie called yeah, campus or something. Yeah, like yeah, totally. So, it's a um, spooky. oh, yes, very, yeah, very mm. spooky. So uh, that one is a fun one. And then we also have some spirituals and some other uh, folk tunes and, you know, different um, holidays. And of course, we end with New Year's Eve online design. Um So we're kind of very doing nice. Yeah, not all 31 tracks It was quite a project to do um, but it is we've taken highlights uh, if you will and um, we've even included one for Festivus for the rest of us and in our own <laughs> version of that so if that is intriguing to you you should definitely come out uh, to Carol's release <laughs> cheers to that well and yes. that would
0: make such a great christmas gift so it comes out december 3rd is that what you said
1: or december 15 and 16 oh sorry uh, december 15th. Yeah. okay so there's still chairs- enough
0: time to you oh, know yeah. buy that and just listen to it for the rest of december or send it to someone buy it as a totally. gift. So I mean you guys we have the perfect stocking stuffers for you if you're looking. So yes. <laughs> right. So there's the albums and Paisha coming up in November and you're teaching. You've got a lot going on. So listeners, let us know if you have any info on the mysterious Jonas or James Wolf fellows. Hopefully we'll get some answers. But Brandy, yes. before we go, are there any words of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners?
1: Words of wisdom. Oh gosh. Um, I'll share actually what came out of Jared's and my conversation, which is that there is what he said. And I think is so true is that there is so much power in the details and the nuance of, of who you are. And, um, and so I'll just, I guess, leave it with that.
0: I love that. Very well said. Brandy Yakuki for sharing your talents and for all the good work you're doing. God bless. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at NativeChalkTalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.